a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to uh, Luke chapter 21. We, um, for the last several months, have been going through the gospel of Luke, and we're going to continue today um, by talking about how to prepare for the Lord's return. But before we get going, I just got to share a way that God's been working the last 45 minutes. I uh, preached the first service, and at the end, I started to get a migraine, and um, if you, those of you who have migraines, you'll know that they're no joke. And I had actually lost over 50% of my vision. And I spent the last 40 minutes laying on my office floor, um, just trusting that God would bring the clarity I need to preach to you this morning. And uh, three people from the prayer team came and just prayed over me for 20 minutes. And I've never had a migraine turnaround so quickly, but I have 100% of my vision right now, and I have no pain in my mind, which is amazing. <laughs> so just want to just pause and just pray and just thank the Lord. I believe that the Lord healed me this morning and um, that he wants to speak to us through this passage. So would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you're always working, that you're always speaking to us. I thank you even for those who shared what was on their heart. God, you are working among us and you're speaking to us. And this morning, I thank you that you held back what would have been a horrific migraine. And now I stand here without any pain and clarity of vision. And I just want to give you all the glory. Lord, I, <clears throat> I thank you that you, you're not a God who idly sits by when we're in pain, but you're a God <clears throat> who either gets us through pain or takes pain away from us. And I thank you that you chose to eliminate the pain this morning. And I thank you that that's not just true for me, that's true for each and every one of us, no matter where we're coming from, no matter if the migraine returns in the middle of this message, God, that you love us and you see us and we can pray for one another and support one another through difficult times. So God, I pray now that you would open up our hearts and our minds as we think about your return, and as we prepare ourselves for the day that we will meet you face to face. And we pray this in Jesus's mighty name. Amen. Amen. Preparation is a really essential part of life. Whether you're going to college for the first time, or interviewing for your first major job, having children, getting married, preparing for retirement, or end-of-life care— to be prepared is a critical, critical aspect of being successful in life. And the goal of being prepared, right, is to do a little work now so that you can have a lot of enjoyment later. That's the whole preparation. And so things will go better for you when those events or significant transitions happen. Now, one thing I've been preparing for for, the, for a good portion of my life is camping. Anyone like camping out there? I, believe it or not, um, have the prestigious honor of being an Eagle Scout, and not all of you know that, but that's right. You're standing in the presence of greatness over here, as my dad guilt-tripped me into finishing my merit badge, which was Eagle Scout. And um, I've been camping for a long time. I've had camping equipment for a long time. It's just something I enjoy. And it's growing, and there's more kids now. And so I don't have everything I need like I used to. And so I needed to buy a car caddy 
that connects to the trailer hitch on the back of the car so you can load a whole bunch of additional stuff like pack and plays and baby seats and more food, all the stuff I needed to take my family camping. And because I'm such a expert, one-of-a-kind elite camper, Eagle Scout extraordinaire, I didn't read any of the instructions for the caddy. I'm like, this thing is black and white, right? You put the thing in the trailer and you lock it and you get going. So I've packed all our camping stuff. I have this plastic tote and it's filled with everything we need. It's got lanterns and plates and pots and pans and soap and extra trash bags. I mean, I'm ready. I'm ready to go camping. And so we drive and we head up to the mountains and right before we arrive, we start smelling this like really awful kind of plastic burning smell. And we're like, what is that? And I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't smell good though, you know? And so we get to the campsite, we check in, we're all excited, and I walk behind the back of the car, and the caddy was placed exactly behind the exhaust, and the engine had worked so hard to climb the elevation gain that all of our camping gear was melted into one plastic ball. It was compact, but it was totally useless. And so literally, we have a picture of me, I should have loaded in the slide, but holding this massive ball, and it's like hammocks and pots and pans and two lanterns and everything we needed to be prepared for camping melted in one pointless ball. And I didn't prepare well for that trip because I thought I knew what I needed to know, right? I, I brought pride and I brought self-righteousness, and so I thought I could handle this, but really I should have read the incredibly big warning on the instructions, do not place behind exhaust. And then I would have truly been prepared. And today we are talking about the most significant moment, not just in your life, but of your existence. More significant than preparing for a child, more significant than preparing for marriage, more significant than going camping, is the day that you stand before God and you give an account for what you did with the life that he gave you. The Bible tells us that that day will happen, whether by death or the Lord's return, that you as an individual will stand before the Lord and he will ask you what you did with your life, the life that he gave you, and you will need to give an account. And God wants you to be ready This passage is the grace of God because Jesus is preparing you. He doesn't want you thrown off guard. He's not trying to trick you. He's not trying to pull the rug out from underneath you. Jesus wants you prepared for that moment. And he's given his whole life and his whole ministry so that you are prepared for that one moment, that one transition, the most significant day in your entire existence. And today we're gonna talk about how do we as people and as followers of Jesus, make sure we're prepared for that moment. Make sure that we follow God's instructions to be ready. So if you want to turn your attention to verse 5 of chapter 21, we are going to read through this very large passage in different sections and talk kind of each section as we go along. And the first thing I want you to see is that we prepare for the judgment of God. 
How do we make sure we're ready for the Lord's return? Well, number one, the most important thing is we need to prepare for the judgment of one. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus says, listen, the day's coming. I know you like this temple. I know it's beautiful. Total and complete destruction is coming upon the temple of God. And they asked him, teacher, when? When will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? So Jesus overhears some devout Jews admiring the temple. And it was a beautiful, beautiful structure it was one of the seven ancient uh, marvels of the world. People would come for miles and miles, and it wasn't just architecturally beautiful. It represented, it was this monument to the cultural and the political influence of Judaism on the society. I mean, it was seen as just a permanent fixture of Judaism in the ancient world. And so to think of it being totally destroyed was just unthinkable, was absolutely unthinkable. And so the disciples, these devout Jews, they say, man, when is this going to happen? First question. And second, how do we know it's about to happen? And the rest of our passage is Jesus answering and responding to that question. Look at verse 20, where we get the most specific description of that moment. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And then and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. Get out of there. Run. Get away from this fight that is coming. And let not those who are in the country enter, for these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill what is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant in those days, who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captive among the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Jesus sure knows how to paint a bleak picture of destruction, doesn't he? But we have to see beyond the bleak description of destruction. This is God's kindness. This is God's kindness. These listeners are going to live through this event. And if you are a devout Jew who loves God and loves the temple, what do you think your first impulse is going to be when you see Rome surround and come against the temple? It's going to be to pick up your sword and to fight like the history of Judaism shows. You're not going to sit by idly if you're a devout Jew. You are going to rally and you are going to fight. And it's Jesus' kindness to say, do not fight, do not rally, don't have some misplaced nationalistic sentiment about fighting for the temple. Because what's happening is not just that Rome is destroying the temple. That is happening. What is happening is God is destroying the temple. And so if you were to pick up swords and you were to fight, you would be fighting against God himself. You wouldn't just be fighting against Rome. And so Jesus, I can see this tender heart of a good shepherd just pleading, listen, listen to me. 
This is gonna happen in your lifetime, like he says later on, and when it happens, get out of there. I want to save you. I want to spare you from the judgment that is to come. I don't want you to be killed by this judgment. I want you to flee, and I want you to be safe. And sure enough, 40 years later, just as Jesus predicted, Rome surrounded the city, and because there was gold laid between the stones, not one stone remained on top of the other, just as Jesus predicted. Now you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with me? That's 2,000 years removed, this historical event that happened on the other side of the world, and the answer is everything. This description has everything to do with you and I. See, there's a lot of misunderstanding about when the Bible predicts things in the future. It's called biblical prophecy. And biblical prophecy isn't so that followers of Jesus can piece together every little event that's going to happen and every time that it's going to happen. Biblical prophecy is not about information. It's about formation. When Jesus is teaching this, he wants his people to be the type of people who respond appropriately. And so what this is, the destruction of the temple, I believe the whole of Luke 21 is just about the destruction of the temple. Now there's other Christian scholars who for good reasons say no, there's a section in verse 25 to 28 that's about the second coming. But then you have a real problem with Jesus saying these things will happen in this generation. So I personally believe that all of Luke 21 is just about the destruction of the temple. But listen to how the Net Bible explains it. It says the events surrounding in Luke 21, the fall of the nation, are a down payment of a fuller judgment that will one day call come to all of humanity. And so we see in this text that the same reason that the temple is being destroyed, that the same reason the wrath is coming on Jerusalem is the same reason that the wrath is coming one day, because people rejected Jesus. That's why the temple is being destroyed. The temple is being destroyed because Jesus came and he announced the arrival of God's kingdom, and he said, come only through me to get to God. And people laughed at him, and they scoffed him, and ultimately they put him to death. And so Jesus is tearing down the walls of the temple because the people had rejected the offer of salvation. And though that is judgment, it's also kindness because God is taking away a false idea about how to go to God. Jesus doesn't want people tricked into thinking they can go to the temple and offer a sacrifice and be all right with God. So God in his kindness is eliminating the possible pathway to follow God falsely through the temple. And this morning, we cannot have a conversation about how to prepare for the Lord if we do not first and foremost talk about the judgment that's coming on the world for those who reject Jesus. And you gotta hold God's heart here. God is not, I can't wait to bring destruction on the world. God is like, I'm just preparing a doozy that I'm gonna open up the floodgates. Read Revelation, that's gonna be a fun time. Finally, people are going to get what's coming to them. No, nowhere in scripture is that the posture of God. The posture of God is, I'm gonna wait as long as possible so as many people can enter the kingdom. I'm gonna raise up a church and I'm gonna fill them with the spirit of God so they can go out and they can tell everyone, 
everyone, regardless of their past, regardless of where they live, regardless of their culture, that if they confess their sin and they put their faith in Jesus, they will be saved. The judgment that's coming on this temple is the same judgment for us. If we reject Christ, destruction is coming because you were made to worship God. You were made to know God. And Jesus literally is dying to bring people into that peace, to bring people into that goodness. And so if you're here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I plead with you, Jesus pleads with you, the author, offer of salvation is on the table. <laughs> Repent of your sin and say, Jesus, I need a savior. I wanna live a different way. And if you have already done that, we need to be rejoicing because God has saved us. We were destined for eternity without God and without any moral righteousness of our own. Jesus intervened and brought us in right relationship with Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, God, that you saved us. Thank you, God, that you knew us enough to know we couldn't offer enough sacrifices to get to you, that you had to come to us and change our life and turn it around. And so the first thing, the most important thing we need to know about preparing for the return of Christ is that we need to be prepared for the judgment of God. But secondly, we need to prepare for the distress of the world. Jesus doesn't just want to save you from judgment. Jesus also wants to prepare you for the distress that is coming on the world. Let's start in verse 8 as we pick up where we left off. And Jesus said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, which is rebellions, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to stand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair on your head. That is, your resurrection head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your life. He's not saying you won't lose your life. He's saying you will gain a life that is so much greater than this life. Verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and distress on the earth of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea, which is a picture of chaos. There's gonna be so much chaos in the world people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. 
Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. We prepare for the distress of the world, firstly by trusting that God is sovereign over the distress. By trusting that there's something greater, there's something more powerful, there's something more purposeful than the distress of the world. I mean, Jesus, he's really preparing them for a bleak situation. Wars, rebellions, earthquakes, famines, pandemics, persecution, betrayal, and even martyrdom. And all of these things cause fear. I mean, have you heard a more accurate description of this age than verse 26? People fainting with fear and foreboding of what the world is coming to. I feel like I've heard that direct quote on the news. People fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming to the world. And even the wars and the famines and all this distress, you know, it's something like, I forget the number, but it's like 80 to 90 something percent of the stuff you hear on the news has nothing to do with where you live. <laughs> has nothing to do with your actual situation. It's all stuff outside of you. It's all stuff far away for you. And yet studies show that if you overconsume news, you are going to be a fearful and anxious person even if those things aren't happening in your area. Why? Because when we hear about this, like Jesus says, he knows that even if you hear about this stuff over and over and over, what's going to happen is you are going to feel like the world's out of control. You are going to feel like you are just a pawn in a system of circumstance, and you are at the mercy of your environment. But listen to what Jesus says. Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. These things are part of the plan. I am working through these things. I am over all of these things. I am above all of these things. These things, God's not just like, oh no, another earthquake, another famine. Angels, quick, council meeting. What are we going to do? Right? Like, Sometimes we can, we can feel that implicitly, even though not, we don't think it explicitly. You know, God is not calendaring his work around the, the discord of this world. This week, God wasn't about to pour out revival on Arizona, and he's like, oh, shoot, there's flooding. Hmm, flooding in Arizona. Maybe I'll have to plan for that next week, you know? God is not waiting around, working around the distress of the world. God is working through the distress of the world. God is using the distress of the world to bring people to God. I mean, I have seen this both personally and corporately. I mean, personally, I love how when I was the high school pastor here, we would take a trip to LA to the Dream Center. And the Dream Center in LA is just amazing outreach to the city. And part of their program is like over 200 men in a recovery program. And on their Sunday night services, one by one, each of the guys gets up and shares their testimony for three minutes. And this guy named Dennis got up 
and he had just the heaviest story, one of the heaviest stories I've ever heard of just abuse and neglect and foster care system and never finding an adoptive home and chronic drug use and being taken advantage, all this stuff, all this stuff. And then he goes, but it was all worth it because it led me to Jesus. It was all worth it. What kind of language is that? This guy's crazy. The stuff he went through, it was worth it. It was worth it. He's up there standing in this huge room of people declaring that the chaos, the distress of my life was worth it because it's what led me to Jesus, and now I have eternal life. Even in New York City when 9-11 happened, what happened? Churches were flooded Church attendance increased. Sociologists said more people prayed in that time than any time in the history of New York. It led people to God. See, God doesn't need to cause these things. He doesn't want them to happen. The world is full of sin, but God takes brokenness and he makes it beautiful. He works in the midst of distress. He is above it all. And what this, this is a total perspective shift for us. What this means is that when you hear about looting in South Africa or revolution in Cuba or the assassination of a Haitian president, you need to straighten up, look up to Jesus and say, oh, Lord, you're coming soon. Lord, you're coming soon. This is it. I'm going to get to meet you one day. You can have confidence when you see the distress of the world because God is working and he's above those things. He's working through those things. But God also doesn't want you to succumb to fear because we make poor decisions when we're fearful, don't we? You do not make good decisions when you're fearful. I know. I've seen some of your decisions when you were fearful. <laughs> I've made some bad decisions when I was fearful. When you are in a place of fear, you act quickly with a hot head. Not very compassionate. I do that too. That's, there's neurological reasons for that. The part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex of your brain, that thinks rationally and reasonably, guess what happens when you're scared? That part of your brain loses all blood flow. <laughs> and all the blood flow goes to the fight, flight, or freeze portion of your brain. So you physiologically, if you are fearful, cannot think rationally. Jesus knew what he was talking about. And Jesus is saying, listen, people are going to try to deceive you. They're going to come and they're going to say, I am he. This is the way to salvation. This is the way that I can help what's going on. And so Jesus is saying, if you're in a place of fear, you are going to look for a quick fix. A quick fix in politics. A quick fix in materialism. A quick fix in your career. A quick fix in how you parent your kids. And Jesus isn't a quick fix. He's a real fix. He's a deep fix. And so what God is saying is, man, you got to keep a cool head. When there's the distress in the world, if you trust that I'm above it all, you'll keep a cool head because you won't be frightened and terrified. Now, that doesn't mean those things aren't heartbreaking or tragic or set us back a little bit or we have to think about how we're going to engage that issue. That's all part of it, but we don't succumb and cower to fear because we know it's not up to us. God is the one working, and so we can keep a cool head. We also need to prepare for the distress of the world by recognizing distress is an opportunity to love. Distress not only is a sign that God's in control, but it is an opportunity. It's an open door. It, 
it widens your horizons of possibilities that now you get to love people. When the world is going through hardship, you get to love people. When the world is fearful, you get to love people. When distress falls, we get to love people. N.T. Wright says this about the passage. Jesus clearly expects that amid these difficult times, his followers will be marked out as undesirable. The ones that everybody loves to hate. That Christians in the end times will be the ones that everybody loves to hate. I mean, even friends and family and relatives will betray and turn your back and mock you for what you believe. The ones that everybody loves to hate. Is anyone feeling the drift in our culture more and more towards Christianity being the ones everybody loves to hate? Church, more than likely, that is going to become more and more the case with each passing decade. And it's not a sign of defeat. It's a sign of opportunity. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, when you're persecuted and arrested, this is for my namesake. And when you're hated by all, it's for my namesake. In verse 13, it literally says, this will turn out to you for testimony. (laughs) That when you go through distress, it's an opportunity to share Jesus with people. It's an opportunity to share how you have your foundation in God. And so Jesus isn't saying don't just have a cool head. He's saying have a warm heart. The Christian is called to have a cool head and a warm heart through anything, through the distress of this world. Now, how opposite is that to the world, is it not? The world is forming people to have a hot head and a cold heart, that we're judgmental and we're brash and we cancel people if they don't believe what we believe and we're cold to them. They're quick to respond in anger. They have a hot head and a cold heart. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a cool head and you have a warm heart. I was reading this this interview and it was this um, conservative gay man who was talking about his experience of church versus experience of politics. And he was talking about how he'd been to church before. And when he was at church, he didn't feel like he fit in, but he felt loved. He felt like people would listen to him. He felt like people approached him. And he said, the most hate I've ever experienced is the day on Facebook I changed my political status from Democrat to Republican. He said, when I changed my status from Democrat to Republican on Facebook, I was canceled. People said the meanest things about me. I got death threats. Some people vandalized my house. Like an outpouring of hate Because as someone who is gay, how could he possibly be of this political party? He was canceled. He experienced a hot head and a cold heart immediately. But in this interview, he said, but in the church, even though people disagreed with the way I was living, I felt loved and I felt welcomed. Isn't that amazing? That is a picture of the type of people we are to be. Not hot-headed and cold-hearted, but cool-headed and warm-hearted as we see the opportunity to love others. And it's not just opportunities to love people directly like that by sharing the gospel. I mean, think back to this list of the distress of the world, wars, famines, earthquakes. And let me ask you, what does war produce? Widows. What does rebellion produce? 
refugees? What does major earthquakes produce? Orphans. What does a pandemic produce? Isolation, loneliness, and depression. Jesus is saying, straighten up. The worse the world gets, the more opportunity we have to love people with remarkable compassion. Compassion that's worth remarking about. In Matthew's account of this same teaching, in chapter 25 of the, the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about the surprising judgment of God. And he says this. He says of the people that get to enter eternal life, he calls them the sheep. The goats are sent away to eternal punishment, and the sheep are welcomed into eternal life. And the sheep are confused, like, wow, why was I good enough to spend eternity with God. And Jesus says this, for I was hungry and you gave me food. For I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we do these things? And the king will answer, as you did them to the least of these brothers, you did it to me. That is the last public teaching Jesus gave. Mike dropped the last thing he said publicly. He's not saying you earned your salvation. They were saved by grace. But what he is saying is that in the end times, there will be people who are hungry, thirsty, without a home, naked, sick, and in prison. And it's my people's job to visit them. And when you visit and love and care for those people, the people who are the victims of the distress of the world, it's as if you were doing it to me. It's as if you were doing it to me. So church, every time you feed the hungry, you're preparing for the Lord's return. Every time you foster and adopt a child, you're preparing for the Lord's return. Every time you volunteer at Camp Agape or a pregnancy clinic, you are preparing for the Lord's return. It is so sad when we see churches lost in political discord and fighting the culture wars. They're just arguing about the distress of the world. Whose fault is it? Who's responsible? This text says, church, wake up. The distress in the world is not to be argued about. It's an opportunity to love people. It's an opportunity to show compassion on people. It's an opportunity to care for the vulnerable and the sick and the marginalized and the poor. Instead of arguing about who's at fault, get in there. Love people. And so not only is the distress of this world not to be feared, but the distress of this world is an invitation to love people who are distressed. That's Jesus' teaching here. That's what he's trying to get us to see. Not to be confused or lost or in our head about it, but to straighten up, to look to Christ, and to engage a broken world. Now, the only way we will ever be able to sustain that type of life is if we are attentive to God. If you try to engage the broken and the marginalized on your own without being connected to the Spirit, without being in love with Jesus, without spending significant amounts of time in worship, you will get burned out. You will get jaded. But if you keep yourself in the love of God, if you have an ongoing, deep relationship with God, that is the secret sauce. That is the engine 
That is the silver bullet to sustaining a life of compassion and fearlessness in the face of the distress of the world. Point number three is that we prepare with hearts attentive to God. As the band comes up, I want to just read these closing words and then a few comments. But watch yourself. Let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, the cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged at the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning... All the people came into the temple to hear him. This passage has been so outwardly focused. It's almost disorienting. It's like wars and famines and rebellions, and it's just all stuff that's out there. It's almost like looking up at the night sky and just trying to find out every star and understand where it's placed. It's all just cosmic and out there. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets to the linchpin of his teaching. He brings it home, and it's just like, and it's like there's a spotlight, and in the center of the stage, it's your heart. It's your relationship with God. And it's just still, and it's quiet. I almost picture Jesus leaning in, just Warning, watch yourself. As he whispers to you, watch yourself. Don't be numb. Don't be distracted by God's presence. Don't be caught up in the things of this world. Watch yourself. This is the most important part of this whole conversation about preparing for the end. Are you alive and awake to God? Are you aware of what he's saying to you? How he's encouraging you? Are you distracted? Are you numb? And here's the thing. This is completely invitational. Some of us have been very distracted in this season with our work life or our phones or our family life. We haven't made knowing God a priority. We haven't made spending time with Jesus a priority. And God is not here to slap your wrist. He's here to empower you to change. He's here to invite you into those intimate moments of reading your Bible in the morning and going to his word and praying throughout your day. Even if you feel like you're at the edge of yourself, God, I need you. Would you help me to have the strength to stand? And that's why during worship, as we paused and just let people speak, we're not just integrating that as part of the service. We're modeling how life with work God works. We pause and we listen and we invite the Spirit and we hear from God because that is the only way that we are going to make it through the times ahead is if you are vitally connected to the person of Christ through His church community, through prayer, and through the Word. Would you guys stand with me as I pray to close? And I would just, I'd love to pray for strength over you, that God would give you strength in this season to push away any distraction or any numbness you're experiencing to God's presence and that we would just be alive and awake to God.
aware of what he's speaking to us and able to engage the world, not fearful, but engage the world, seeing opportunities to love by sharing the gospel and caring for people who are in distress, amen? So Jesus, thank you for teaching us. Jesus, I love your teaching. I love sitting in the gospels and hearing your words about how to live my life. God, I wanna thank you that you care about every little thing we're going through right now. Every argument, every frustration, every pain, you care about it and you're here this morning. And God, I admit that I need strength. Lord, the distress of the world is overwhelming at times. I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you, God, to be my strength. I need you to stay connected vitally to your word. I need you to be an active participant in the local church. I need you to monitor my news input or to monitor the media that I watch or how much time I spend on my phone. I need you, Jesus. And so God, I pray for our church that we would be known as people who are attentive to God's presence, that we would be known as people who are undistracted by the things of this world, that you are our focus and your words matter the most. Holy Spirit, come, even now come, even now come. Those who are hurting, Lord, heal them. Those who are confused, Lord, bring clarity. Those who need to repent, give them strength to repent and to receive the grace of God that joyfully welcomes us and gives us second chances. Jesus, help us to be prepared for the day you return. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.